Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be crucified, to condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our company, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. My goal for this sermon is to expound Luke's account of the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, and that that account, as we see Jesus reaching these unbelieving disciples, that that account would form within you a greater hunger for the word and a greater respect and faith in the table. That is, what we're going to do at the end of this service, which we do every week, is we participate in a meal together. And that meal is quite significant, and yet at the same time in the modern era is quite neglected, especially in the Protestant church.
So we're going to look at what Jesus is doing in this passage. What I don't want to do is tell you that you need to be like these two disciples, and as soon as you learn, you need to run back to Jerusalem. Oftentimes we get sidetracked in these accounts because we think about what we ought to do in identifying with the disciples. But really, this passage is about what Jesus did in coming to reach these disciples. It, it really begins at the very start of Luke's account, how Jesus came up and joined their conversation. And so everything we're going to be doing today is going to be looking at how does Jesus impact these unbelieving disciples, transform or, or translate past their unbelief and begin to show them his glory. So first we're going to look at the doubt of the disciples, then we're going to look at his rebuke of unbelief, his extremely wise and gracious rebuke of unbelief. We're going to look at Jesus and his glory in the scriptures. We're going to be talking about the Bible that uh, you've known for so often what the wonder and beauty and glory that we have available to us in the scriptures. And then finally, we're going to look at this very significant account. Um, I, I love what Luke does here, especially when you consider it in the entire canon of the New Testament, how wonderful and beautiful, not only Jesus's action in that moment, but Luke's capture of that moment. And then finally, we're going to close with a reading from, from 1 Corinthians very briefly, as Paul uses this same pattern to describe what really is communion all about. What does the Lord's Supper really mean? Is it just a symbol or is it something greater, far greater? And I believe indeed it is. So what I want you to do is remember back to the disciples' conversation with Jesus before he was betrayed, before he was crucified. He often told that the Christ must suffer, and yet the disciples had no grid, they had no paradigm to believe this. They believed that the Messiah was going to do something radically different, and that in his role as the Messiah, he would triumph over the occupying force in Israel. In those days, the Roman Empire ruled that land completely. They had established a false king outside of the lines of the kings of Israel, who was really not even a Jew. He was part Jewish. And so he was a false king, a traitor, someone who is an immoral man. Uh, he, he, he is just like all the evil kings of Israel, and they believed or perceived in some way that the Messiah's goal was to kick out the Romans, kick out Herod, and establish his kingdom. And so everything that's involved in what they say here could be slightly confusing, but we had hoped. But when you understand what their hope was, you begin to see how it prevented them from seeing who Christ actually was. So, while we don't know exactly why they were traveling to Emmaus, Luke tells us that these things were happening while they had conversation. So their experience of coming away from the crucifixion of Jesus and this story, this account that the women told their group was, we're going to go to this city Perhaps they were returning home after the Passover. Perhaps they were leaving Jerusalem, having felt like the, you know, this new Messiah project failed and we're just going to go back to our former way of life. We don't exactly know why they were leaving, but we do know that Luke records that these two were having a conversation. And so when Jesus comes up and asks them, what are you, what are you talking about? 
it, it indicates they were already reminiscing. Have you ever done this with something in your life where you, you know, it, it's a tragedy and so you just can't get over it? You know, if you've ever found yourself revisiting something, especially if it's some sort of wound or, or experience that has negatively affected you, someone's betrayed you, you cannot move past it. It defines your whole world. That's exactly what is happening for these two disciples. And so Jesus approaches them. They're not going to look for Jesus. So often the resurrection accounts are presented as, you know, we need to be like Peter and John. We need to run to the tomb. Brothers and sisters, they ran to the tomb after hearing that Jesus had been resurrected and they didn't see him. And as this account tells us, they did not believe. Just like we saw last week, Jesus breaks through the room. He, he passes through locked doors to present himself. That is exactly what is going on here. Jesus Christ joins their conversation. He goes down, follows them, and meets them. And he does that for a specific reason. Verse 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love this verse because it, it presents something about the event, but it doesn't tell us how. And what I love about that is because it, it keeps us from getting off into weird speculations. Oftentimes people will say, well, well, God was the one who was keeping them from seeing, or it was their unbelief. Brothers and sisters, that's not the point. The point is they could not see who he was. Even if Jesus came to someone, they cannot understand that he is the Christ. Jesus must reveal himself by the Spirit. Jesus said, anyone who comes to the Father comes through me, and no one comes to me unless they're drawn by the Father. Likewise, here we see, unless the Spirit of God moves upon a person, even if they were a disciple of Jesus, they cannot perceive him. So whether it's God temporarily blinding them for, for an effect, and that might be it, or whether it was their sad, unbelieving condition that prevented them per, from clearly perceiving who he was, they were blind. They were unable to see him. Perhaps God veiled their eyes. Perhaps Christ did it. Perhaps they were blinded by their unbelief. Nevertheless, it's important to see that they did not know him. And the word used for know there, there's two words and there's in, in the Bible that are used for know, and this word connotates an experiential knowledge. For example, if you go to a group of uh, people and you, you know, read a roster or what have you, you know them on an informational level. I, I know a, a number of people who love sports, and they can recite facts and figures that it's quite frankly amazing. I mean, when I listen to the, you know, people pull out the stats from prior seasons, but it's totally different when you have lunch with them. You've never met most of your heroes, right? And when you do, there's this strange thing that happens normally is you recognize, wow, they're just a, a regular human being with flaws. See, that's the difference between head knowledge and experiential knowledge. It says here that they were prevented from relationship, with, they did not know Jesus Christ. They had no fellowship with him. They had no heart to heart. They were still sad and left in their unbelieving condition, even though Jesus stood right in front of them. Remember two weeks ago, or last week, we talked about how Thomas had this wonderful opportunity to put his hands in the nails and, and the holes and in the side. And, and oftentimes we envy Thomas 
Brothers and sisters, we have a much greater privilege than Thomas, as we're about to see here. So as Cleopas replies, he reveals that they have totally abandoned their former faith that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, just really quickly, the word Messiah is a term that is the same as Christ. Christ just means the one who was anointed to be the king, the one who would sit on the throne of his father, David. And Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms. So if you're, if you're new to the faith, Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? You've got Jesus and he's being revealed as the Messiah, as the Christ. And so when they say we had hoped, we had hoped, past tense, they're saying that they no longer understand Jesus to be the Messiah. Whether or not they believed before this moment, it's clear that they are saying we had hoped. It's, they're saying we used to believe this, now we're not so sure. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's a, that's a touchstone or a phrase that is saying we had hoped that he was the one who was going to bring about the redemption of Israel. What was the redemption of Israel? Well, Israel was set up to be a special nation chosen by God to be a kingdom of priests which mediated God's presence in the world around them. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and yet over and over again, they take God's blessings, they turn them inward, they spend their blessings on themselves, they become idolaters, and then they go off into exile. After the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity, Israel mostly never comes back to the land. And so at this time in the history of Israel, not only have they not returned from exile, but now they're being occupied by a foreign force. If you think back to, you know, if you're familiar with like Joshua or Judges, it would be like the Amalekites and the Philistines rising up and Moab coming in like a flood and establishing their own kingdom in the midst of the Israel, uh, Israelite nation. It, it would be like a foreign empire coming to our country. Have you seen these in the last few years? I think it's quite interesting. In the last few years, there have been like 10 different blockbuster high-budget films in which another nation comes into America and establishes a military invasion. I, I like those films in a number of ways because they're, they create a sense of what would an apocalyptic-style invasion look like. Now, I'm not really into shoot 'em ups but the point is that that's conveying some of the message, that a, a foreign empire comes in and you've got this little tiny faction of rebels who want freedom once again. If you think back to World War II, this is what happened in a lot of the countries that the Nazis invaded. For the most part, they were too powerful to be expelled, and yet there were these small resistance movements going on. This is somewhat like what is happening in Israel in this day. Before the time of Christ, and really even at this time, there were these false messiahs who would rise up, attempt to establish a military coup against the, the Romans, and then ultimately it would be squashed. That's the context for these disciples. They interpret Jesus' death on the cross as, well, he was supposed to kill the Romans, but the Romans killed him. And so they have a completely wrong understanding of the role and the work of the Messiah. That is, they believe the Messiah's goal is to destroy the Romans and to throw them out. Look at this. He says, verse 21, but we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. In the history of Israel, the three-day period was used over and over again by God, that after three days, he would reverse a former judgment that he brought on his people. We, we don't have time to go into it, but this is kind of indicating these disciples are really sure that this is not the Christ. They, they understand it. That, you know, Cleopas uses this phrase, besides all this, it's the third day. As in, if he really wasn't dead, if he was going to come back to life, or if he, you know, survived the crucifixion as some people did, and was going to be resuscitated, he'd be back by now. Or he would have brought in another Messiah. Or he would have raised up a second in command. You know, if there was a coup against him, he had a backup. Brothers and sisters, they're saying this to indicate it's kind of, it's, it's settled at this point. After one day, maybe you could revive him. It's been three days. There's nobody coming. The Messiah is kind of done. So, Jesus, at this point, immediately relates the facts, uh, sorry, Cleopas immediately relates the facts of the account of the resurrection, which we looked at the last two weeks, and he then says, even in the light of that, we had hoped. We no longer are hoping. That is an absolute contrast. Their expectation of who the Messiah was supposed to be prevented them to see the significance of the very act by which the Messiah was revealed. Remember, if you were here on Good Friday, we talked about how in John's gospel, as Jesus is going up to the cross, as he's on his way to the crucifixion, over and over again, Pilate and the, the Jews, the, the Pharisees, they're all having a disputation about who Jesus is, whether or not he is the king of the Jews. That is, whether or not he is the Messiah, the one to sit on the throne of his father, David, the the king of the Jews in the golden age of Israel. And so Jesus is crowned as king at the cross. And here these disciples, they say, nope, he didn't match. And they were prevented by their perception of who Jesus was supposed to be from even recognizing him at all. This is so important because it often is mirrored in our lives where we have notions of who God is supposed to be. Isn't this right? You, you go through life and you experience something. Well, you know, if God was real, he wouldn't have allowed my family member to be killed in that car accident because I prayed and God didn't answer. Or if God was real, he would help me overcome this problem and I, I'm not overcoming it. So it must just be the case that this is just who I am. It's part of my life. Brothers and sisters, you cannot project your understanding of who God is supposed to be onto Jesus Christ and make that stick. In fact, the entire New Testament militates against making Jesus in our own image. See, we are made in God's image. God is the creator. God is the dictator. God is the revealer. He's the transcendent one who communicates himself through redemptive history, through his word, to his people you cannot define who God is, nor can you define what God should have done in your life. Preventing God from speaking to your life based on what you feel should or shouldn't have happened in the past or what should or shouldn't be happening now will forever keep you away from God. That is the very definition of spiritual idolatry. It is deciding for yourself what is good and evil. 
What was Adam and Eve's sin? It was stealing from the tree. It was hearing God's word not to take from the tree. Adam heard God's word to protect the garden. He let the serpent in. He let his wife take from the tree. She ate and he ate. And he determined for himself what was good and what was evil. That is exactly what these disciples are doing at a heart level. They're not stealing from the tree, but they're rather not recognizing the one who paid their debt on the tree. They're refusing to come to Christ that they would be healed. And so after these guys finish the account, Jesus replies with a rebuke, and he calls them foolish. And as you can see what what they're doing, when we look at the kernel of what they're doing and what we so often imitate, it really was folly right? Jesus actually is using this rebuke for a specific purpose. And at this point, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's never commendable in the scriptures to be slow to take up the word and to believe it. Now, you should test everything, but you shouldn't delay in that testing. You shouldn't get around to it. Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. My question is this, how does Jesus call them fools if he himself warned against saying, you fool? Do you remember this in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, do not say you fool. Anyone who does this will be liable to judgment. So is Jesus an unrighteous man? Far be it from us to claim that the Lord and Savior of the world is the unrighteous one. No, brothers and sisters, Jesus warned us against using the word you fool as a word to judge and condemn. You see, there's, there's a heresy in the modern church. It's an unwritten doctrine of evangelicalism which says this, you can never correct, rebuke, or, or admonish. You can never use harsh words in order to bring somebody to the truth. You have to make it rosy. You have to make it comfortable. This is a great trap, and you might even be in this trap. Now, I'm not telling you to go around and malign your brothers and sisters and start using bad, but rather that there is a heresy of the modern era, which is what I like to call the doctrine of nice. And I like that phrase because it, it uses a, um, you know, it uses this word nice, and that's usually something we think is a good thing. But the doctrine of nice, as I define it, is this notion that, has totally been received by the world. Judge not lest ye be judged. And that's where they end the quotation. Here is the problem with that, is that Jesus goes on to say, you know, if you've got something in your eye, take it out and then you can help your brother. Right? That is what Jesus is telling. He's not saying you can't make moral evaluations. He's not saying that you can't call abortion murder. It is murder. And there is forgiveness and grace in Christ. But only in knowing that it's murder would you even think to pursue Christ in that. God hates divorce. Yes, divorce is tragic. And there's forgiveness in Christ in that. But unless you know that God is opposed to divorce, you won't even, you'll have this inner sense of guilt, but you'll never know where to go to resolve it. The point is that the law of God, that rebukes from God, are very precious and sweet. 
And without them, you will be trapped in spiritual blindness and spiritual confusion for the rest of your life. Unless you come to the place of humility where you can allow the word of God to gain entry, both through his scriptures and through ministers of the gospel, using the word as a scalpel to unveil the heart, you will never be rid of your cancer. You will never be rid of the gangrene which must be cut off and made new. That is what Jesus is doing with these words. He's saying to them, you guys should know better. You not only should know better, you should have had quickness of heart to apprehend the grace of God in the scriptures so that when these things happened, you saw who I was. Jesus Christ was never more perfectly revealed than on the cross as he was paying for your sins and my sins. In John's gospel, he says that was when he received the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Remember in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, now glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was created. And in John's gospel, that word glorification is the same as his crucifixion. John actually uses it in the place of crucifixion so that you would get a spiritual sense of what's happening. This is why I'm not a very big advocate of movies like The Passion of the Christ and things like that. Because they they show you a pictorial representation of something that in the physical was horrific, and yet there's no way to capture the spiritual beauty of what took place. Jesus was more never more fully made manifest than at the cross and through the resurrection. And so Jesus uses this phrase, fools in order to get to the heart of, their ma- of the matter. They were blinded by sluggishness of heart, by sloth of spirit from, per- from perceiving who Jesus was. What they should have done, according to Jesus, was uh, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Christ is not against using the word, word fool, but against using it to bear down, but rather he judges with right judgment. Christ does this in order to liberate, not condemn. And if, if you understand the gospel in that re- regard, you will see this as a mercy and grace from Jesus Christ. What would be the alternative? If Jesus did not show them the depth of their folly, it would be to leave them in their folly. You know, Jesus could have simply walked up to their conversation, journeyed with them for a moment, heard that they don't, didn't believe, and then said, well, you guys are, you know, you go on to Emmaus, I'm going to go find other disciples. Right? So Jesus' action in calling them fools in order to, like a scalpel, get to the heart of the matter. I, I, was, uh, I was cutting up a lamb at Easter. We have lamb every Easter and we normally get it from a butcher who takes care of this one part of the lamb. Um, there's this lymph node and it's hidden inside the muscle. If you're a doctor or a nurse or, or you've done any butchering, you've, you've seen this. It took me 30 minutes with a very sharp knife to find this lymph node because it was hidden behind muscles, behind sinews, behind thick fat. It took a very sharp and dedicated action to get to the bone where that lymph node was. See, Jesus is not using this word as like, you guys are foolish. He's not condemning them. He's indicating you guys are spiritually blind. And and I want to show you how to perceive who I am. I want to reveal myself to you. He uses that word, foolish ones or fools, 
in order to cut through the deep levels of hardness of heart to get to the core. And then he does exactly what they should have done. So the question at this point is, when you neglect God's grace, you cheat yourself from true fellowship and communion, but what is the remedy? What is the remedy if Jesus says you should have believed? The remedy is this, and Christ explicitly gives the remedy himself in this medicine of describing their condition and then delivering them by telling of the necessity of his work. You see, in this verse, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, in the next, very next verse, verse 26, it says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Peter uses a very similar phrase describing what the prophets of old did in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that the, that the prophets who went before you were searching and inquiring in the scriptures indicating what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories or the glories to follow. That's exactly what Luke is saying here. He's saying these things and enter into his glory afterward. So seeing Christ on a surface level of knowing that Jesus is the Messiah is not enough. Knowing that fact is not perceiving his glory. Perceiving his glory is doing this. It's searching out the scriptures to find why it was necessary. What do I mean by why it was necessary? Is why did Jesus have to suffer? It's not just enough to know that Jesus did suffer. It's not simply enough to know that Jesus suffered and was raised and is glorified. It is important to know why it was necessary for him to suffer. And then look at what Jesus does, and beginning with Moses, and, and that, that is not in the beginning of the book of Exodus. When, when Luke uses this phrase, Moses, he's saying the entire Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then there's the history writings, and then there's the Psalms and the, the prophets. And so all of these components, beginning with Moses and the prophets, those are the two large sections of the scripture, and they imply the rest of the whole. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what does Jesus do to remedy their condition? He begins to expound the scriptures to show why it was necessary. The rhetorical question aims at disclosing why they were mistaken. They presumed the Messiah was to deliver their people through you know, power through military might to expel the Romans, to, to revolt against Herod, and to establish his own kingdom. They had no ability, spiritually speaking, to understand the hidden mystery of God in the word, and he rebukes them for not having done so. Why? Because God himself is the reason it was necessary. Jesus says it was necessary that the Christ suffer because God deemed it so. Think about this, if, if Moses, that term Moses, actually means Genesis, where do we see this at the beginning of the scriptures? I believe what Jesus would have said to them is that, do you not remember how when Adam and Eve were expelled in the garden before God kicked them out, that he made a covering for them? That he killed an animal, and because their fig leaf covering was not correct, he provided a covering? 
See, it was necessary that a sacrifice be made for Adam and Eve. And then he would have gone straight down the line. He probably would have stopped at Joseph and said, do you not remember how Joseph delivered the family of Jacob and the family of Israel by being first rejected by his brothers in order to go down into Egypt in slavery, in order to rise to the second in command over the kingdom and provide food for the nation? He would have done this over and over And this would have been his means to explain, this is not only necessary logically speaking, it's necessary because God himself deemed it so. That God desired for the Christ to suffer and be a true penalty for sin. Not a false penalty, not some sham, not some magic trick, but rather he would truly expiate the Father's wrath against sin. That he would bring his people close to himself by the blood of his son. And so the first step in deliverance from any false doctrine is to come to a greater knowledge of who God is. And you cannot come to that knowledge merely by reading theological propositions abstracted. Everything that God does to reveal something about himself is revealed through history. And so God has given us this wonderful precious gift. Jesus does this by searching the scriptures, and he expounds not merely the allusions to himself, but also the reasons why he must suffer. See, it's not enough to know that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. You have to remember that the Passover lamb, in order for his blood to be applied to the lintel of the house, he must die. And that blood being poured out is the ending of the lamb's life. It's not enough to have the image in mind If you always flatten it, oh, we'll pass over Jesus, right? Lamb to Jesus. Okay, stone that the builders rejected, other stone, right? It's not enough to know that, oh, yes, Moses strikes the rock in the desert so that the people will drink water. Okay, rock Jesus. No, you have to remember the rock was struck. That is what I believe Jesus would have been doing in this conversation. Over and over again, he would have shown, this was speaking about me. This was telling about me. And he would have been showing them in perfect detail, in full glory. So my question to you, just like you might envy Thomas, do you envy these disciples? I've heard people say, like, I wish I had the tapes from that meeting. I love that. I wish I had the tapes from that meeting. But you know what? I, I don't need the tapes from that meeting. Why, why do I not need the tapes from that meeting? I have the tapes from that meeting. This is what God has given us. He gave us a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he gave it to us to use. He gave it to us for a specific reason, that in reading these things, we might believe. So take it up and read. I, I'm reminded of the story of um, uh, Augustine, He was mentioned in the Sunday school hour, so I thought I'd bring it up. In in chapter 12 of Augustine's Confessions, he tells this story that actually makes him sound kind of like a very young Christian. He did this thing early on in his faith, and I think this is where probably where the pattern came from, where he was praying one day, and he was just so overburdened with this knowledge of his sin and how God was displeased with his sin. And so Augustine heard, he said he heard, it sounded like children were playing and they were singing this rhyme, take it up and read, take it up and read. And so he thought, well, 
I, I don't know any children's rhymes that sound like that. And so he perceived that it was the Holy Spirit telling him to go to the scriptures. And so he did what I counsel everyone not to do. He randomly turned to a place in the Bible and started reading. Isn't that funny that Augustine did that? He was transformed and saved that day. Because what he heard in the epistle, I believe it was to the Corinthians, was that you, you should not continue on in your sin. See, he did not understand that it was actually God's grace to him that he should be using the word in such a way as to console himself and also find Jesus in it. And so he took it up and read. Give yourself to the reading of the scriptures. Jesus says, if my words abide in you. Later on in 1 John, uh, 1 John tells us that there is an anointing which abides in you and it teaches you all things. Do not pervert that into saying, well, I have the Spirit, so I don't need the Bible. No, the, the Spirit was given to you so that the Holy Spirit would be able to help you understand the Bible. The most important doctrine for understanding the Scriptures is the doctrine of illumination. I do this every time I read. I would encourage you, especially if you're doing a Bible study with, with someone, is to pause and begin and say, Holy Spirit, I can't understand this. Please help me. And then to, in faith, believe and trust that, the, that God wants you to make a godly use of the scriptures. Give yourself to the reading of God's word. Do not wait for the new year to start a Bible in a year plan if you are not doing that. Even if it's not a Bible in a year plan, I, I think sometimes we think, well, I got to wait till January to get back. No, get back on the horse. If you've fallen off recently, give yourself, give yourself to the reading of the word. Get rid of everything in life if you can't, can't get to the word. I would encourage some of you, maybe you need to quit your job and find a different job if you can't get to the word. If it's been weeks and months and you find yourself unable, then do what it takes, brothers and sisters. The glory of Christ is hidden in these pages, and he's given us the spirit to mine the depths of, of treasure. There are gold and gems the, the Bible itself is called better than gold, better than much fine gold. I don't see it that way. I often neglect it in, in that sense. I do my daily reading, but I don't swim in the Bible. I don't live and, and, and abide in the Bible. Let the word abide in you. If you would see Christ like these two on that day, let the word abide in you. So Jesus does this, and then as they begin to go to the town... Jesus appears to go on, but then he dines with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I want to give you an example of what it means to swim in the word. Now, I'm not saying every time you read your Bible, you're going to find these beautiful truths. But from time to time, the Holy Spirit will reveal something to you that will move you to your knees in praise and glory. That is, what Jesus did here becomes a pattern through the rest of the New Testament. In the Gospel and Acts, this motif of an interplay between spiritual and physical blindness is used over and over again. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And that man who was born blind comes to know that he's the Christ. But through the Pharisees' dispute with them, the Pharisees do not know Christ, and even though they say, we see, they are actually blind. You see, there's a spiritual sight. The physical sight which Jesus restores to this man then becomes also a spiritual sight. 
The Pharisees at the beginning of the story say they can see, and yet Jesus at the end of the chapter says, your blindness remains. When Saul is seeing in the natural in the book of Acts, he goes up, he's going to Damascus, and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in the natural. He sees a vision of Jesus appear before him. And then immediately after Saul sees, it says, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. That's a, that's a thing called double meaning. Paul's eyes were spiritually opened, but the glory of, uh, the glory of Christ blinded him physically. You see, it's, it's an inversion, right? Same thing is going on. So on the island of Cyrus, when Elmas the magician opposes the gospel, Saul, Paul, comes and he curses him with blindness, and then the proconsulate Sergius, believes. This is a pattern, and it's a pattern for a reason. The, the, the way that God worked through history was to use this so that it could be written with literary beauty and so it could catch our attention. Hey, there's something weird here going on. They were blind and now they see, but they're still blind. What, what's going on? Look again at what happens in Luke 30, 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Do you see this? Do you see what, what Luke is saying happened? Likewise, as soon as they saw Christ, he vanished from their sight. Luke records this event to show the significance of Christ's self-revelation to his disciples. You see, as soon as Christ wanted to leave the scenario, he did. And they didn't see him any longer. So immediately after taking, blessing, breaking, and giving the bread, they perceived who Christ is. This is not a coincidence. This is deeply significant. Jesus does not just eat after the resurrection to prove he has a real body. Right? A lot of times we think, okay, Jesus is eating with them in order to prove that he's a real person. Right? Now that is one level, and that is true. But additionally, what Jesus is doing in having fellowship with the disciples through the meal is he's training them in the manner of fellowship that they will have after the ascension, right? Right before he goes to the cross, what does he do? He gives them something. He gives them the Lord's Supper. He gives them that meal, not just as a one-time event, but as a pattern to be repeated. Luke reminds us of this as he summarizes how these two testified to the other disciples. In summarizing, he said, verse 35, then they told what happened on the road, that is the explication of the scriptures, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Paul himself tells the Corinthian saints that they have entered into this exact same pattern. Jesus said, eat this bread and drink this cup. And so Paul tells the Corinthians that as often as they do this, they proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But it's important to see what Paul says in these verses, and this is our Last reading for today, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 24. I, I love this. I love these verses. They are so beautiful. What Paul says is, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Do you remember in John 6 at the feeding of the 5,000, what happened? Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and distributed it to his disciples. And his disciples then took that bread 
and distribute it to the people. I think Paul is explicitly referring to that, that in the theological or gospel tradition of the message that Paul brought to Corinth, he's saying, what I got from Jesus Christ, the understanding of the gospel, I delivered to you, and it included this, that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. You see, this pattern is too explicit to to be a mere coincidence. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it and said, this is for you. The Corinthian saints, according to Paul, have entered into the very same meal. Paul says that I delivered this gospel to you and that when you eat it, you proclaim the Lord's death. He's saying that you reinvigorate or represent exactly what took place that night when Christ gave this to the disciples. And in doing this, Christ's work and person are truly known. But it's not just the Corinthian Christians who do this. Brothers and sisters, we are about to eat in that same meal. Just as the Corinthians have fellowship through that same meal, we by faith also have fellowship with Christ as we come to this table. It is not enough to know Christ in the word. Christ also gave us a meal. So do you long for that which truly satisfies? Remember in John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would tell me to give you a drink and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. And she says, give me this living water. She didn't fully understand it, but she said, give me this living water. You don't have to understand what's about to take place at the table in all of the different mysteries and meanings, the way that theologians have talked about the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper over the years. You don't have to know that. What you have to know is that Christ was known to them in the breaking of bread. So come eat and drink. Come to find rest for your souls. Father, we pray today that you would give us grace that you would not only allow us to see Christ in your word, but that in coming to the table in faith, that we would truly have communion with you. We thank you for the wonderful gifts that you give your church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We thank you for these wonderful gifts and signs. We pray, Lord, that today as we come, that you would remove any doubt from us and that you would at the same time transform us, that, that we, upon meeting with you, would be moved to more thoroughly sanctify our lives in order that we would have greater fellowship with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and you chased down these unbelieving disciples and like a master physician, you healed them of their unbelief. We pray, Lord, today, help us with our unbelief. Amen.